Hello and welcome to the October edition of the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Fiona Taylor and later on I'll be joined by my colleagues from Garden Organic, Chris Collins and Dr Anton Rosenfeld. Well, September had some surprises in store for us, didn't it? The temperatures shot up, then back down again, the wind blew, the rains fell. Autumn seemed to arrive rather abruptly. I enjoyed what seemed like the world's shortest dahlia season in my garden, but the blooms were stunning and the tomatoes are still ripening now, making up for their very slow progress in July and August. Later on, we'll be opening up the post bag and answering your questions about organic methods to deal with box hedge moth, how to tend a grapevine, and what to do with a plum tree when the rot sets in. Our special guest this month is Pam Corbin, author of Pam the Jam, The Book of Preserves. This is Pam's second book, as well as contributing to a number of books as part of the River Cottage Handbook series. Before all that, I'd just like to thank our sponsors, Viridian Nutrition. Viridian produce a range of award-winning ethical and organic supplements, which include vitamins, minerals, herbal oils and balms. Known as the Vitamin Company with an Organic Heart, their supplements are stocked in over a thousand specialist health stores across the UK. To find out more, visit viridian-nutrition.com. And now I'm off to join Chris in the Garden Organic Potting Shed. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm very well, Fiona. How are you? Very well, thank you. We are here today in the actual potting shed at Wrighton Organic Gardens, and we're surrounded by very clean and very well-sorted pots. We've got lots of tools, a few seed heads drying, a jobs list. I mean, does this bear any resemblance to your shed? Yeah, I love I love potting sheds. I love mess rooms and potting sheds, bothies, as the Scottish call them, anything like that with tools hung up. All They've all been cleaned and oiled. I love all this sort of thing. Uh, any gardener will tell you the same. It's like your nerve centre, your sort of, you know, everything kind of radiates out from the tool shed, I think, and this one certainly does that. It's great. And they've, they've even got things on the wall, like jobs to be getting on with. They've got uh, a planner. They've got the seed trays. They've even got the nets for fishing out the pond. It's great. It's, it's just got that garden oh, smell has, about it? it as well, I think. Yes. Now, you know, that kind of earthy sort of like, I know that's a strange thing to say, but I always think they're quite distinct scents to a, a potty pine shed. It's got that kind of smell about it that's very sort of unique to it. It is, absolutely. You always know you're in one, don't you? Definitely. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's great. And the team, I know, come in and out of here all day. So we'll probably have a few people popping in um, as we're talking. So since we last spoke, we were really down in the dumps last month because we'd had such a wet and miserable August. We weren't very optimistic about our hopes for September. And then all of a sudden, goodness me, what happened? Yeah, we hit a hot spell, didn't we? A nice, nice, toasty hot spell. And you know what? All those plants I described, my chilies, my aubergines, my tomatoes staying green. Oh, I had a bonanza, I tell you. <laughs> I really did. I had a bonanza. All of it sort of ripened at the same time. I actually went down the allotment at the end of that hot period and I, I took two big carrier bags down with me and I could barely carry it all. So I've been out there. I don't know what do I do with it all. So I've been cooking this. I've been making crumbles, funnily enough, with the grapes. And I've, made, I've got into like uh, dips. I made a little aubergine dip and a courgette dip. And you know what? One of my favourite things about uh, the, the hot sort of climate crops is just the colours. I laid them all out. Yes. I was very hunter-gatherer. I lay them all out on the table <laughs> when I get in. And I'll call my wife and I'll go, look what I've got. And I'll, yeah, I'll get all like that. And, um, but then I look at it and I just love those. I've got peppers, beautiful red peppers, purple aubergine, dark purple aubergine. All, I've, got about, I've got a lot of heritage tomatoes, so I had yellows and reds and stuff. 
it just looks incredible, you know, when it's all laid out. The colours are fantastic. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And, you know, and, and the real kind of last burst, wasn't it? I, I have to say that having been a bit pessimistic about everything, I ended up with some beautiful sunflowers that I didn't think were going to flower. Um, my dahlias finally flowered. Um, everything was very, very late, but it, it had this gorgeous flush, lovely show. It was incredible. It was just like a kind of extra layer of joy on the end of the summer. It, it really was great. The only thing was my sweet corn didn't get terribly big at all. Yeah, but I've got tiny kernels yes. of sweet corn, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and I don't worry yeah. about breaking my old teeth on them, put it that way. No, exactly. <laughs> so I don't, yeah. I've got a couple that were all right, but I just think they... I mean, obviously, if you go to the continent, you go to the med, you see those, you know, they're really ripe and sort of, they just need longer heat, I think. Yes. Going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, minor, yeah, minor bit miniaturist, I have to say, also. Um, the greenhouse was good, though. I ended up with a lovely, steady stream of tomatoes. You know, we were certainly self-sufficient in, in salad tomatoes. And then I had a couple of friends had a glut. And so I ended up uh, making a great big, great big sort of preserving pan full of passata. Mm. And I bottled it. First time I've ever bottled anything. Very exciting, that was. Yeah, brilliant. You've got to think these things with Tommy's because when they come, they come on mass. I always grow more than I need. I, was, I did bolognese sauce. That's all in the freezer. I did a lovely homemade tomatoes sauce, a soup. And we ate that cold, you know, with like a stick. Oh, like yeah, a spatula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that was really interesting as well. Basically, you, are, you, know, you, go, you go from gardener to part Jamie Oliver, don't you? Because you've just got all this stuff you need to deal with. My fridge looks so healthy because it's just full of produce from the allotment. I can't bear it going to waste, can you? No, I really, I'm, I'd give it away rather than waste it, to be honest with you. I'd give it to my neighbours. But I, I like the way it encourages you to cook and think about what you're eating. It's the whole process is seed to plate. And I think you, you go on that journey with it and you know what, that's why I do it. And nothing tastes like freshly grown veg. And uh, if you're lucky enough to get a big glove of tomato and aubergine and peppers and chilies, then all the better. Yeah, and also kind of, Gives you that nod towards next year, kind of makes you feel optimistic about next year. I mean, did you save any of the seed from this glorious produce? Well, I've saved some. I've got tomato seed because obviously I, um, Katrina at HSL is very generous, gives me some tomato seeds at the beginning of the spring. So I'll be saving those. I've got quite a lot of uh, heritage seed runner beans. Um, I don't know if you remember, but our spring show, um, Gardens World Live spring show, we had a lucky dip jar of, of heritage beans. Yes. So I grew two of those on wigwams on my allotment, and they've just been amazing. I've got this really incredible selection of six or seven beans. So I've left a proportion of them on, and I'll let them dry. I'll probably actually cut them down and hang them up in the shed, in a tool shed like Absolutely. this one. Absolutely. And I'll let them dry, and then I'll, I'll, I'll be, I'll be uh, sowing them again next year. Yeah. I mean, seed saving is such a you know, such an integral part, isn't it, of, of organic growing and organic gardening and you know, making the best of absolutely everything. Um, I think you might have even just uh, started to have a good old chat with Rachel at the Heritage Seed Library. You, you're going to do a special episode on seed saving? We are, tomato seed saving. I mean, she's a mind of information. And, uh, and it's really interesting, um, the, the process of it. But I love the science behind it. We're talking things about stratification, you know, what the seed does to stop it germinating in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's why tomato seed has that gel around it, because it's a way of deterring the seed from germinating until conditions are right. But the actual process of saving the seed, the cleaning, is pretty straightforward. So there's no reason not to, especially if you've got delicious heritage varieties. Yeah, a good time to be thinking about it this time of year. So there will be an unpruned episode of the Organic Gardening podcast uh, dedicated to seed saving coming up. So listen out for that. So talking of cooking and preserving, we're talking later on in this podcast to Pam Corbin, Pam the Jam. Pam the Jam's oh, a great my name. Oh, word. And uh, what an inspiration she was. I, I had the, the privilege of, of going and meeting her in, in her kitchen 
um, the kind of nerve center, you know, of, of all this extraordinary jam making. Uh, she just not just she doesn't just know her stuff. She just is so inspiring and just full of ideas of trying something new. You know, she's very keen on making sure that we think about how we can make jam without quite so much sugar. Yeah. You know, to just make it modern, have modern ways of saving things. You know, jam doesn't have to set solid. You know, lots and lots of ways to make your produce, you know, go on and on. And I've made loads of jam, actually. I mean, she completely inspired me to do it. I've got to pick your own near me. So I went and picked a load of raspberries and a load of strawberries and, and cracked on and followed a whole load of, of Pam the Jam's recipes. But also bottling and pickling. Um, I mean, have you tried pickling? Well, I'm trying that this year because I had, as usual, the, uh, we all have a glut of courgette, don't we? Yes. Yeah, I mean, you lay them out in a row, it looks like you've been hunting at the end of the day. <laughs> and uh, so I tried, to, I don't, again, I don't like throwing it away. So I've tried pickling courgettes. Um, with, with with a bit of white wine vinegar, I don't know how it's going to work out, and a few walnuts thrown in as well, if I remember rightly. Uh, the dips have been my big thing. I've really enjoyed it, but I did try and make chili jam with a bit of red, red wine vinegar and sugar. Uh, I've no idea how that's going to turn out. I saw I listened to Pam with interest because I just think it's a big skill and it's a traditional skill. It's a cultural skill, and I think like we say, we don't like throwing things away. But before we had all this technology and fridges and everything, our grandparents would have always pickled, always did on preserves because that's how you stored up for the winter. Absolutely. And and one thing to remember is that, of course, we're talking about jam making now, but actually the, the thing is we can freeze stuff. So, yeah. you know, harvest is a busy time. It's a bit of a panic station, isn't it? You can't possibly preserve everything, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, and actually we're lucky if we can, you know, because we can just put, put things in the freezer and, and do it when we're ready. And so then jam making can then become a kind of Bit, bit slower and a bit more gentle. Yeah, a bit more joyful. gentle. Bit yeah, more gentle. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And even, you know, starting to, to look towards Christmas and making your mincemeats and things like that, because, of course, apples are all coming into fruition now. So, so plenty of apples and plenty of things you can do with apples in, in terms of preserving. But, of course, I bet I know what you do with apples, Chris. No, well, I would like to make some cider, to be honest oh, with you. Oh, cider. <laughs> I thought you were going to say crumble. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, would, uh, I don't know how to make cider. I would try I've already, already, I, uh, my neighbour Peter, Irish guys, two lot as long, has a big Bramley tree. Bramleys are perfect for crumbles. They they've just got that tart sort of, sort of, you know, really sort of spicy sort of hinge to. So I'm already on the crumble, Fiona. I'm already on it. In fact, I'm going to mix grape and apple together at my next crumble adventure. I think. <laughs> <laughs> the adventures of Christmas crumbles. I love it. Um, thinking of fruit, actually, I am absolutely determined. If I say it to you now, I've got to do it. I'm going to plant a green gauge tree this year in my garden and I will report back on getting one because I'm going to have to get one that's self-fertile because yeah. I haven't got room for two. So um, we'll come back to that uh, on a later episode. But I'm thinking now about my bulbs. Um, now is surely the time to be thinking about bulbs. It's, what are you thinking? Oh, it's my main job in October. Obviously, I've emptied out the balcony and all the bedding's gone over and the seasonal crop. The car gets filled up with stuff with the compost bin down on the allotment. It's quite a big operation. <laughs> and then I plant bulbs and I, I always go for that long stretch. So I like to start with, I like Glanthus in there. I like crocus. I like daffs. I like tulip. I like allium. So I just get this long range of flowering. And I'll probably grow them. People call it the lasagna. I prefer the word trifle. We've heard me say that before. But I like them to go through each month for the spring, producing something more before it's time for me to put the more tender stuff out again. So it's a big change over time. I'll also put a lot of wallflower in this year. I'm a big wallflower fan, obviously, for my parks days, because they'll get to about 
mid-April and you'll get that blaze of colour and the bulb will burst through those. So, yeah, spring bedding time for me. And I'm, I'm out there. I'm also planting them at the front of the building with my neighbours. And uh, so, yeah, it's bulb, bulb, bulb time. Yeah, absolutely it is. And I'm thinking myself, I mean, I, I've invested in some camassia, some blue camassia. Oh, I love camassia. Um, and also some white narcissi. So I'm quite excited about that. I think that's going to be a, a, a really lovely combination. I, I'm planning to do quite a few pots, each pot being dedicated to an individual bulb. Mm. I, I love the trifle also. But um, but I like having this amazing interest because you can get a lot of bulbs for not a lot yeah. of money. And therefore, you can fill a lot of pots. Yeah, they're fairly cheap and they're really tough as well. So they will not let you down. You're going to get flour off them. You're right, a good pot full of a white daff, like you mentioned, is yeah. absolutely stunning. You can do mono as well. You just get this incredible display. I mean, you can't put a price on them in terms of the, 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 what you're getting returned from a bulb. Yeah, I like the idea of mono. So do just do a whole white table. Well, there's, yeah, there's um, February Gold, which is a Narcissus. And that's a really early one. And that, a big pot of that, and that'll just come in sort of late February, just when you're feeling oh, hard enough for winter. That'll come up bright yellow, beautiful golden yellow, cheer you right up. Yeah, I think they are absolutely stunning. I think they're possibly the most exciting time of year is, is when bulbs come out. Uh, I, I mean, organic bulbs are not that easy to get hold of. So do... You know, if we were going to advise people, where would you go to get your organic? Well, I've been going to Dutch growers to get mine, which I don't like. I prefer the carbon footprint to be lower, but they get a big selection. And obviously they're grown on like a six-year rotation, almost like an agroforestal rotation. So they build up natural resistance to pests and disease. So there is quite a lot of time of it. So a few more could involve, but I quite like the idea. Otherwise, a lot of these, especially high tints and stuff, are absolutely dripping in chemicals. So if that's a problem to you, you have to look a bit further afield. Hopefully our bulb trade back here will start to get into the more organic side of bulb growing and we'll see more of that on the market. Yeah, I know that my two that I have bought already were organic. They are going to be a little bit more expensive, but then if you do look after them, there's no reason why they don't come back. Well, they might all go out on the verge out the front behind the car park. and so There's no waste. They all get rehoused at the end from the balcony at the end of spring. So yeah, they're there forever. You naturalise them in your lawn. You know, choose a bit of your lawn, dig them in, into the lawn, let them come from the lawn every year, underplant in your borders. It's, you know, they, they, they're never wasted. If you've done a load of pots like I'm going to do, can you lift them afterwards and dry them and save them for the next year? Yes, yeah, certainly. So what I'd do is I'd wait about five to six weeks till the leaves start to yellow. That means the bulb's drawing in the nutrient from the leaves again. As soon as they start to look flaggy and dying yellowish, then you can cut the tops off and replant them out. That's pretty much what I do. Can you keep them dry, though, in, in the potting shed? Yeah, I think you could keep them for a while. At some point, they'd need to go in the ground. But you know, okay. I suppose that you bag them up, don't you, if you're growing them commercially. So I don't know what the longevity would be. So you can do that. You can put them in trays. As long as they're dry, they don't go mouldy. But I would look to get them in the ground when I could. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So they need, all year round, they need to be yeah, in the ground. They're happier really. there. But yeah. So it's not like dahlias, where you would lift a dahlia for a few months then, and then put them back in again. You'll leave it till the spring, yeah, because you're avoiding the cold and the damp with those. Where, yes. Yeah, I wouldn't be necessarily doing that with most bulbs. Because they're all pretty hardy. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, basically. Oh, gosh. Well, you've got me really excited now. How are you getting on with planning ahead for next year, Chris? Well, my head is always six months ahead of itself. Because obviously, the spring <laughs> bedding is a good example yeah. of that. Um, I've got a few jobs on where I'll soft landscape because this time of year, um, you know, I have a couple of clients who would want me to do planting schemes. It's always a favourite of mine. I can get to play. Obviously, my Gertrude Jekyll lift and divide a basis border will come into play. Um, <laughs> so there's that going on as well. I do also have a look at all my house plants this time of year. Um, I will probably maybe pot some up. I'll probably take some cuttings of some. I'll give them a kind of once over as well. There's very little I'll bring in from the balcony, maybe a chilli plant or two. 
I've got one called Little Richard, um, which uh, Jekka gave me, Jekka Herbs. And um, so I've got my eye on that. I don't think I can throw that away. I think I'll put that by the window and see how that gets on. Oh, lovely. Yes, well, I haven't really got that far. I'm planning to do my planning, but that's as far as I've got. <laughs> well, you've got a winter. To be fair, I think there's nothing better. I think probably, in the, you know, before Christmas scene, you get all your catalogues in and you can sit down in front of the fire and when it's blowing a breeze outside. And, you know, so maybe the other thing to do in October is get, you know, all the catalogues you're thinking about. If you're going to plant stuff, you want new stuff for the garden, get it all set up. And then that's a good sort of winter thing to think about. Yes, good, a good idea for when the nights are drawing in. I love that, Chris. You just painted a lovely picture. I now know exactly what I'm going to be doing in the in the winter evenings. Thanks ever so much. Cheers, Chris. Cheers, Fiona. Now, I recently had a very delicious assignment on behalf of the Organic Gardening podcast. I visited Pam Corbin, also known as Pam the Jam. In fact, her Instagram handle is the Pam the Jam. Pam and her husband Hugh are serious foodies. Many years ago, they got out of the rat race, moved to Devon and built up their own jam-making business called Thursday Cottage, a regular winner of Great Taste Awards and which still supplies farm shops, delis and food halls. Pam has written and contributed to several books. Her latest one is called Pam the Jam, the Book of Preserves. Pam is a busy person. She writes recipes for the BBC, is a judge in the International Dale Main Marmalade Awards makes preserves for the king and is known amongst the professional chef community as the go-to person on jams, jellies, curds, sauces and bottled fruits. A few weeks ago, on a glorious morning, I caught up with Pam in her kitchen and I asked her first when she acquired her wonderful nickname. I think just having that name called Pam and, you know, when we started making jam, I remember a farmer friend of ours always calling me sort of Pammy Jammy or Jammy Pammy. And, and, <laughs> and I think also with the River Cottage, he would always call me Pam the Jam. And it just seems to work, doesn't it? It does. It works yeah. perfectly. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely yeah. brilliant. And that's, of course, your name on Instagram. It's not just Pam the Jam. It's the Pam the Jam, just to make sure. <laughs> well, someone else had got Pam the Jam. Oh, so no. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> it worked out well. <laughs> and actually, we were want to start by just asking you particularly what is it that makes a jam well jam is you need four ingredients one is the fruit one is pectin that's a really important aspect because that's found in the natural fibers of all the fruit and will actually help make it set or gel some acidity and that can come from either the fruit a gooseberry is a classic perfect fruit for jam making because it's got it's got flavor it's got pectin it's got acidity and of course the other thing that we do also need to add into this is sugar and jams have changed over the years with the amount of sugar that we can put in essentially those are the four ingredients you need to make jam make a good jam absolutely and you've mm. been involved in two books so so talk me through the books and and how your thinking has changed yeah the first book i wrote was in 2008 and that was for river cottage i always call this the old testament because it's got more classic recipes in there but it covers most aspects of home preserving from jam making to curd making and pickles and chutneys and a little bottling which is a really a very interesting subject some salting and a few other bits and pieces my new book which is called Pam the Jam the book of preserves I think of my new testament because I've actually taken an old skill and tried to bring a new light to that old skill that we know and that is in the use of actually reducing sugar content reducing vinegar 
vinegar in some things. They were not, you know, faced with the overly vinegared beetroot and just making things lighter and brighter. And we can do that in this day and age because we've got wonderful jam jars with wonderful lids that seal and keep things really safe until you open them. Perhaps sort of looking back to the older methods where people would add a lot more sugar, that's actually sort of come from from days when we didn't have our jam jars and jams were actually sort of put into sort of large jars and sealed with wax and of course in those days there were no fridges so that really if you went to your cupboard and found your jar had gone mouldy you'd be really disappointed really disappointing mm. because that of course you'd been looking forward to that mm. for months or, or it actually had been a key part of what you were going to eat over the winter in the winter your seasonal eating the second book was written over probably two or three years maybe a little bit more because I needed to shelf test everything to make sure that it was going to be safe when it's opened. I think this mm. safety aspect is mm. something that perhaps people have a little bit of fear around mm. that and, and I think you're very reassuring in your book mm. about how to make sure that you do preserve safely but what are the things that people should just be mindful of? One of the most important things is actually to make sure that your work surface is clean, your jars are clean and sparkling, your lids are in good condition, there are no dents in them, Um, and to follow a recipe that I have to say I often see on Instagram people that have got all their their jars of jam ready you know and they they haven't put their lids on them and I want to shout at them put those lids on quickly because really one of the most important things is if you're hot filling a preserve particularly if it's lower sugar you need to fill high you don't want any gaps at the top and put that lid on as quickly as you can Yes, Mm. indeed. I'm not a brilliant jam maker, but I am a jam maker. And I think probably my most treasured possession in my jam making toolkit is my sort of wide-necked funnel. Ah, yep, the good one. So no splashes down the side. No splashes, but also Mm. you can get up the jam right up to the top of the jar, which that seems to be the modern way now. We don't bother with wax discs, is that right? No, uh, I mean, sometimes when I judge it, various shows and things I find people have put a wax disc in and a lid lid on top there is no need to do that at all because actually if you look at a modern lid it's actually got that little bit of wax inside and that's going to create your seal if you pop a little bit of wax disc in as well you're going to you're more likely to have a problem because actually the condensation will hit the roof of the lid and it will fall back onto the top of the paper won't be absorbed into the jam or the chutney and you're more likely to have mold on top there and um, for the uninitiated, mm. when it comes to putting a, a lid on a hot jar mm. of jam, mm. what are the top tips? I would say filter the top, do two or three jars and then quickly put it on. If you've got a problem, wear a little cotton glove or something if, if you're worried about the heat. But I think once you get into it, it's actually, you can do it quite quickly and effectively. It's mm. getting the hot jars out of the oven, actually. That's the bit I always find Well, difficult. again, <laughs> a, you know, a little glove or something like that or not get them too hot. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. So going back to the book, one of the things you talk about in your New Testament <laughs> um, is you, you take the pressure off jam making. A lot of people are trepidatious about it. And, and I think you have done a great job of showing people how you can actually be quite laid back about making jam. It doesn't have to be done in in um, a morning. This is something I've actually sort of worked on quite a lot recently and I find often the most important thing is to, if you've got fresh fruits, strawberries or raspberries, yes, you need to act quickly at the beginning. Don't sort of put them in the fridge for three days. You want them when they're fresh. 
But if you actually just get, put them in your preserving pan, heat them a little and put your sugar on, that's actually going to sort of keep them safe because the sugar is there. And if you haven't got time to finish the jam at that point, take it off, make sure the sugar's dissolved, cover it. I will often put a piece of baking parchment over the surface and then put a tea towel over the pan. Leave it in a cool place. You could leave it there for you know 12 hours 24 hours even a little longer because because it's got its sugar on nothing's going to happen to it and then sort of go back to it and you will find that if it's something like a strawberry or a plum jam the fruit and this is always an interesting point if you want to keep your fruit whole in your jam i'm not talking about whole plums i'm you know whole halves and things like that um because the fruit has been softened it will then absorb the sugar and so the sugar and the fruit become the same weight and you will not get a separation. I find this fantastic, a fantastic way of making marmalade. In fact, my best or favourite marmalade is made over three days by slice and dice. Soak. The next day I will poach and that will take a couple of hours or so and then I put the sugar into the mix, stir until it sizzles, then take off the heat again, put it onto one side and that time the softened peel will just become beautifully translucent and and somehow become soft. Leave it for 24 hours and the next day I'll just sort of bring it up to the boil and cook it for probably six or seven minutes or however long it takes to get to the setting point and then pot it and that's just three small stages perhaps the longest stage of that is actually going to be the slicing but you could do it over three evenings couldn't yeah, you yeah, you know yeah, i like yeah. the idea of marmalade week <laughs> yeah, yeah and so you know so i always say to people don't panic you know mm. you know sort of break it down and enjoy making it um you don't need to spend a, a whole day doing things and as you say you know do it over three evenings you know we talk about slow food that it's uh, doing things as and when you can i think we might walk through if you wouldn't mind um Pam has the most amazing shelf, which is packed full of glorious glass jars and and bottles, all beautifully labelled and all different colours, just giving a a sense of the possibilities of of what you can do and the different things that you can do with, with crops. I call it my cool, dark and dry place. Here we are, we're in the cool, dark and dry place. And walking towards the shelf here, which... Uh, where do you want to start? Yes. The top shelf? Uh, no, I'm going to start on the bottom shelf, I think. Well, OK, if we look in this corner here, this is actually, this is rather glorious. This is called a green apple jelly. And this is made with what those really early apples that you get that, you know, we call them June drop. And I've made several pots of this. It is a rather beautiful jelly. and sort of Amber colour, completely see-through, just gorgeous. And yes. that is actually just made with green apple and sugar. It's cooked until it's nice a nice jelly. And what I will probably use this for is actually sort of popping it into some really low pectin jams or jellies. So I've actually already got a gel. Lovely to put into a cherry jam mm. and then of course cherries are actually quite low in pectin um so so you can use it to boost the pectin yeah in other absolutely so, and that's it and uh, you know i've turned that into jelly i've got in this corner over here i've actually got that's just some that's an apple quince pectin stock so that's actually just like a fruit stock that has actually been 
bottled up when it's hot and I can actually just add I could put that into some marmalade if I wanted just a little bit more flavour or something so fruit stock is is a really novel idea not something that's occurred to me ever that's another great thing to do at this time of the year and again you know that's your natural pectin stock if you actually make quite a a, a, a good one using tart apples yes okay. so and and a great asset and then uh, this is a lovely red tomato chutney a new recipe that's on the BBC website um, that's really nice and you've got some uh, passata so yeah, passata uh, to me is something that that almost falls into the bottling category is that right yeah but this this is a slight cheap bottling again um, this is this is a roast tomato passata with you know onions and garlic a few courgettes and a few bits and pieces sieved I've got a passata machine and again I've actually hot filled that into these jars and then I actually the jars were sterilized in a water bath i.e a deep pan with a tea towel on the base and I took the jars from that simmering water filled them put the lid on and I just drop them back not, not literally drop them, pop them back into the pan just for um, five minutes or so just to make sure that it was well sealed um, because that heat will, heat will bring it down. That's made with homemade tomatoes then we go to cucumber pickle Yes, pickles. Now we haven't talked about pickles I'm, I'm <laughs> the Pickles are a revelation to me. I, I really used to think that they took ages to pickle and, and I would sort of leave them on the shelf and forget about them for months on end and actually they pickle awful quickly yeah, don't they? yeah and it's a, and again a great thing you can do over 24 hours because the most perhaps the most important thing is that your vegetables are brined so that you're right. reducing or drawing out any excess water because if you've got lots of watery cucumbers and cucumbers are 90 percent water that um that water will actually dilute the vinegar. So you salt them first? Salt them first, brine them. Uh, sometimes you read recipes where you seem to need a lot of salt on them. Just a tablespoonful on a kilogram of cut up cucumbers will actually drain. And then I, I would just leave them in a bowl overnight, covered with some baking parchment or a plate, and then um, a quick rinse in the morning and drain them and leave them, leave them for you know, 10, 15 minutes to drain. And that's going to give you your crunch. It's not only crunch, but also not diluting the vinegar. Um, this is a great recipe. This has come from a lovely friend of mine in Denmark. That's a hot dog relish. And I was going away a week or so ago. I got a pepper and I'd got a couple of cucumbers and some onion and I made three jars really very quickly, you know, because that's just a a brining overnight and then a, a mix of a few spices and it, it's just celery seeds and turmeric I think there's coriander in there and it's just a five minute cook and then again into those lovely warm jars and a lid on immediately okay and above we've got um something that I'm really excited about rhubarb ketchup well actually that's another one I did for someone I think it's not the most exciting of colours is it no it, it looks but, a bit grey actually yeah, doesn't yeah. it uh, but again that would depend if you you actually started to use the really early Yorkshire rhubarb but it's just a nice way of using rhubarb using it up and 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 why not you put it on yeah. put it on your crumble I suppose or you can uh, but what would you use rhubarb oh, ketchup I, you wouldn't use I, it in a sweet context you'd use no, it in a savoury context sausages or ah. sort of something you know just, yes. just that you would use a tomato ketchup yes um, okay um, and you've got a wonderful recipe for tomato ketchup also yeah. in the book yeah. yes yeah. Yeah. yes so. and on the top shelf we've got quite a lot of bottles fruit and I, I 
believe that you do do some bottling for the king, is this right? Yeah, I do a little bottling for him and jam making for him, which I've done for, well, probably nearly 10 years now. It started off with a few apricots um, and it's grown and it's just a nice thing to be able to do. The fruit is from Highgrove. I do five different things each year for him. What we're looking at here, however, isn't necessarily the king's fruit, is it? But it's um, we've yeah. got all sorts of... I've, um, I've got some plums, Victoria plums. I've got some gooseberries here. I think it's just such a fantastic way to preserve because your fruit's going to be as, as almost as good as having fresh, really. Yes. Um, and what do I say? A shelf doesn't take any electricity. You've bottled a lot of fruit and you've bottled tomatoes. Yeah. Um, I don't see any bottled vegetables. What's the reason for that? Uh, vegetables are difficult because of the risk of botulism. Um, and the only way you can safely sort of really preserve vegetables is actually to have a, a high pressure canner, which the Americans often use, or the other thing you can do is actually sort of make maybe a ratatouille mix or something and actually add some acidity to it in the form of a balsamic vinegar or even lemon juice um, to stop botulism. We don't want to just reduce the risk. We don't want to have any of it at all. Um, and it's it's always interesting and I I am keen to sort of explore it more mm. but I'm very aware from where I stand in life I have to be very careful in what I tell people. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's, it is interesting um though this this notion that you could that you can bottle stuff and keep it all the way through um uh, but it, it, it's interesting the caution that needs to be exercised mm. around vegetables i think it's really important to mm. say that so thank you i think in, you know people used to salt their beans down yes. and i have tried that before but not hugely successfully and of course the other thing that people will do is actually make a sauerkraut or they'll actually do a fermentation yes and that is something that i can do and will do um but I think we're really talking about sort of preserving in jam jars today. Yes, mm -hmm. indeed. Mm -hmm. um, thank you. You're going to come down off your yeah. steps. <laughs> We've been up on the top shelf, really having a good old look through the uh, through all the preserves. They're just they look beautiful. We're going to walk out of your cool, dark place <laughs> and uh, we're going to finish up in your lovely, lovely garden. Um, so if I can just explain, we are on the edge of a valley looking west looking west and um and the garden therefore is on quite a slope um but my goodness it it, it looks wonderfully productive there are four large raised beds each one given over to one crop which seems very sensible yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and uh we've got some uh purple sprouting broccoli um some enormous leeks yeah the about 200 leeks have got French beans at the moment and then sweet peas and there's, there's a little fennel on the other side and we're waiting for the beans to go before the other brassicas go in for the winter. I see, so yes, you'll take them out and you'll put the, put the brassicas in. Yes, well, hopefully you'll get a, another few weeks out of them. They're looking very, very productive, those plants, I must say. They are, but also the cabbage white are looking quite productive. As well, <laughs> yes, yes, there's quite a few cabbage white bobbing about, but yeah, there's an awful yeah. lot of bees also. Yeah. Um, and across the valley, I can actually see some beehives, aren't yeah. I? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. So you must have a yeah. lot of mm. uh, bees in your garden. And quite a few apples in down into the orchard as well. But yeah. no quince this year, um, which is sad. 
for me. But uh, why I'm is that? It didn't. Oh, we I, we're never that successful for quince. I usually find some somewhere. <laughs> yes, yes. I know somebody's got a box of them yeah, somewhere, yeah, yeah. and I expect you've got contacts. I do. <laughs> <laughs> the garden is gorgeous, and you know. A wonderful place to relax, although um, you obviously are a very busy person. But what does the garden mean to you? Oh, it's a little bit of peace, isn't it? You know, we think, oh, there's a garden, but as soon as you get out there, just, you know, there's little things to do and it's just always very relaxing. It smells very yeah, green. Yeah. I've got I yeah, say, the greenhouse is great. I've got this lovely look at this amazing morning glory here. Absolutely it's beautiful. Self sown. I uh, couldn't resist not keeping it. Absolutely gorgeous trumpet flowers mm. um, with 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 red stripes uh, across the, the the purple. I mean, really, really stunning. Gosh, for for something that's self seeded, what a wonderful guest to have arrived <laughs> in your greenhouse. The white convolvulus isn't quite the same. Is it? <laughs> no, no. no. No, no, it certainly isn't. Certainly isn't. Um, and um, and I think um, down on the right hand side, looking down again on the garden, um, this this had a lot of cabbage on on the right hand side. And obviously, we're towards the end of the season now. But you've got some wonderful things that have managed to self seed and sort yeah. themselves out. Uh, yes, there's lots of borage and nasturtium, and actually today it's just alive with uh, bees and pollinators really pleased to see it um, and it just that little little patch gives me a lot of pleasure because it's as it's meant to be isn't it Pam it's been absolutely lovely it really is a peaceful and beautiful garden um, and I know probably a wonderful respite from the kitchen and I hope uh, I hope everyone has a lot of fun and enjoyment with their preserving So here we are, time for the post bag. I'm here with Anton and Chris. Hello there. Hello there. Hi. So I have a vine that's been producing successfully for nine years, but this year the leaves have turned extremely pale around the leaf veins and turned brown at the leaf edges. What do you think has gone wrong, Anton? So there are two things in there. The paling around the leaf veins, that's a really classic sign of iron deficiency. And then the sort of browning around the leaf edges, that's usually potash deficiency. Now, what happens when you get iron deficiency? That's usually a sign that your soil is too alkaline. So I wonder whether they might have um, limed it or overdone the lime. That is the possibility. But it could also be some history in the soil. A lot of gardens got quite a lot of sort of builder's rubble underneath them. It might have sort of tapped into some of the cement in there, which is extremely alkaline. So. I, I think they need to sort of address the iron deficiency and the potash deficiency there. Okay, so how would they address that, Chris? How would you fix it? Well, I'd probably, for a quick-term fix, I would, I would give it seaweed extract because seaweed extract has a lot of iron in it. I'd either water that on or something. Actually, quite a lot of the time, I prefer to spray on with a mister, and I'd probably do that early in the morning, the leaves will imbibe it. And they actually green up quite quick as a result of that. But if for a more long-term solution, I would be looking to make sure that soil is getting plenty of compost the soil's staying rich, so the roots are in the right part of the soil absorbing the nutrients. That would probably be my long-term solution. Okay, it's quite hard to acidify the soil, I'm told, and there's quite a lot around on the internet about things you could sort of have a go at, which, you know, 
I don't know if they work or not. You know, do you put pine needles on it? Do you put rusty nails on it? What do you do to try and acidify um, a soil that isn't acidified? So this is actually quite a bit more difficult than it sounds. There are quite a few old wives' tales. People say putting coffee grounds on there. Actually, coffee grounds aren't that acidic. You've actually drunk most of the acid by the time the coffee grounds (laughs) come out. Um, So not such good news for your stomach. And even the pine needles, as, as they break down, they lose their acidity. So it's quite a difficult thing to do. I don't think really there's a quick fix answer, but by gradually adding compost, you will buffer that um, alkaline soil. So you're not going to quickly acidify the soil. It's going to be a, a slow process. I mean, vines are sometimes easy. They go a bomb and sometimes really difficult. Chris, what would you say is the key to success with vines? Well, I've looked after a few in my career. I had a big one at um, Westminster Abbey. It's a huge one, in fact. And I've got one I inherited on my allotment and I like to just prune them to a, a framework, basically. So I've got the sort of older stems. I've got five or six of those on my lot one. And every year, the growth that's been put on, I will cut back to sort of two buds. I'll spur it, basically, like a wisteria. So that means it creates fresh vigor in the spring because the plant starts again, give it a good mulch as well, and that'll boost it. So that's that's pretty much what I do with, with a grapevine. I'd also maybe, if you get whippy growth through the summer, I'd cut that out. Also, as the grapes start to ripen, you get bunches of grapes. I cut the leaves away to get the sun in to ripen them as well. And I have to say, I had a lot of grapes this year. They were a bit bitter. I don't know what variety it is because I inherited it, but I made an extremely good crumble with them on Saturday. (laughs) Crumble seems to be one of your specialities, Chris. I've I've got crumble addiction at the moment. (laughs) Okay, we'll move on to box moth caterpillars now. So uh, I have box moth caterpillars chomping their way through my box. Well, you probably haven't got box anymore if that's happening. Uh, a gardener friend of mine has recently recommended a natural cure in the form of a bacteria which kills the caterpillars quickly. Will they die off naturally after killing them or create another problem for birds and other insects? Oh, gosh, quite a knotty problem here. So first of all, Anton, just talk us through box moth. OK, so box moth has several generations through the summer, and so the caterpillars are going to be chomping away most of the most of the summer. And the, the problem is we've just got so much box planted around the UK that they've got a monoculture feast, basically, so that's why it's become so prevalent. The, the actual box moths look, look quite pretty. They're black and white with nice white around the edges as well, but the box moths will strip your box really really quickly once you get a few of them on there and it gets worse each year i think yeah yeah well i i have suffered myself from them and people have said to me well why aren't you spraying them and um my question is well is there such a thing as an organic spray to get rid of them so it's quite interesting what this person is talking about he said that there was a bacteria which um he uses almost certainly what he's talking about is what's called BT or Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a bacteria that's used against quite a lot of caterpillar pests. And it is used in organic systems and it does break down and it doesn't harm birds as well. The only thing is it's not actually licensed for amateur gardeners. You shouldn't be finding this on the internet, this bacteria. What you can use as an amateur gardener, there are nematode treatments that you can use throughout the summer from about spring right to the end of September. You, you can be using those and you'll find them in quite a lot of gardening catalogues. You do have to 
pay attention to the instructions because because it's a living thing, then you need to apply it under the right conditions. Otherwise, you're just wasting your money. Having said that, I think you're probably going to be fighting a losing battle and you might want to think about replacing a box with something else. Yes. I mean, this is the thing. If you've got it, then it, it gets rid of of your box, but the likelihood is that your neighbours have got it, other people nearby have got it, maybe they're not treating it. You know, if it's around, it's around, isn't it? So actually, it's kind of, you know, not if, but when in terms of needing to replace, I would say. So Chris, if you were going to replant, what would you use instead? Well, I had a knot garden at Westminster Abbey and that had box in it that was suffering. It'd been there quite a long time. So we used an alternative there and I used a plant called Lanicera nitida. Okay. Uh, which is a, Lanicera is the genus of the honeysuckle, but this is a shrub with very small lanceolated leaves that grows very similar to box. So we used that. We put that out in the knot garden and used that. And that is very good. It's very resilient. No pest and disease. The only problem with it is it grows very quickly. So you're out there with your shears quite regularly, which you wouldn't be with box. But it worked perfectly well. There are a couple of other alternatives. Actostaphylus, which is another small green-leaved plant. Um, even some Petoniaster varieties will make a replacement for box. So there is. Actually, if you wanted to find out more about it, Wisley Gardens do a big trial on box alternatives. There are plenty out there. You do a bit of homework, you'll find out more. But for me, Lanicera nitida is the one. Okay. And when would you plant that, Chris? I would put that in the autumn, any kind of shrub, mostly any perennial, really. I like to plant in the autumn because the soil's still warm. And that means the plant will stop putting on top growth, but will put on quite a lot of root growth. And that means it'll get through the winter better and get a nice strong start the following spring. Okay. This is perfect advice for me because I'm taking an awful lot of dead box out in the next few weeks. So I shall be doing that. Thank you. Right. Our last question is all around fruit trees, um, but specifically around the plum tree. So I lost a lot of my plums to plum rot this year. Will I always have it or can I do anything to stop me getting it in the future? Anton. So I sympathise with them because we have the same problem in our garden. Plum rot is a fungal disease and the advice is to stop it spreading to the next year is to pick all the rotten fruit off the ground, but also you'll find what are called sort of mummified plums on there. They've sort of shriveled up, but they, they still sort of carry the disease over until the next year. And the advice is to try and remove all of those. I find that's not practical to do that. I can't reach half of them. And, and trying to get rid of it all is, is quite difficult. So I find gradually the problem gets worse each year. It starts off being a nuisance and then you gradually lose more and more fruit. So I think, unfortunately, it is there to stay. Okay, so the rot really genuinely does set in. It's not a case of you can, you can, you can cure it. it. You know, that's it, is it? That's my experience of it, certainly. Um, I've got an interesting little story from my own garden, perhaps not an example that everyone would want to follow, but um, we accidentally let a sucker grow from the rootstock in our garden. And out of curiosity, we said, well, let's just leave it and see, see what happens to it. And we ended up, it ended up producing quite a lot of fruits on it, quite a lot of sort of quite small, sort of almost like a gauge sort of fruits. They were slightly on the tart side, but we really like the flavour of them. Certainly in the crumble, yeah. they are Perfect. really very nice. <laughs> And but the amazing thing is, we found there wasn't a single bit of brown rot on them. That they were incredible. totally resilient. So I think we're quite 
tempted to cut the rest of the tree off and leave the roots, Dr. Gray. Probably not a great example of a conventional horticulture, but it might work for us. Yeah, absolutely. And well, if it works for you, that's, you know, half the battle. I mean, I think in this instance, if they've not been as lucky as that and getting a nice healthy sucker from the rootstock that produces a different type of plum, then presumably the answer is to try and plant a resistant variety and, and to be getting on with that in the next few weeks. Again, good time to plant. What, what resistant varieties are there? So there are two varieties which, which do have some resistance. And there's one called Saar and there's one that's called Jefferson. They're not totally resistant, but it's certainly better than Victoria, which is what most people seem to end up getting because it's most common at the garden centres. It's a nice plum. People are used to it, but it hasn't got particularly good resistance to brown rot. Okay. And would you advise them to plant it in a different part of the garden? I wouldn't. I would say that's probably not a bad idea because there's probably quite a few of the sort of fungal spores kicking around. So a, a change of location wouldn't be a bad idea. Well, let's hope that works. We've covered loads of ground there. And just to say, if you've got any questions for the podcast, just drop us a line on social media. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks ever so much, Chris and Anton. Cheers, Fiona. Thank you. See you next time. That's all we've got time for this month. I must let you know that next month, Chris visits Kirsty Wilson, a presenter on Scotland's brilliant gardening programme, Beech Grove, as well as being the herbaceous supervisor at the Royal Botanic Garden in Edinburgh. Do send us in your organic gardening questions. You can contact us via our website or social media. We're at Garden Organic UK on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok and LinkedIn. And if you're not a member of Garden Organic already, now's a great time to join. If you added the Heritage Seed Library onto your membership, you'll be able to choose six packets of Heritage Vegetable Seed to grow yourself once our seed list goes live in December. Thanks again to our sponsors, Viridian Nutrition, and to Kevin McLeod for our theme music. That's it. Till next time.